Welcome everybody to the June 2020 edition of the CNS Journal Club podcast. Uh, this is Dr. Raphael Vega, your moderator for today's topic, uh, coming from uh, BI in uh, Boston. Uh, the focus of today's topic is going to be uh, spinal neurosurgery, and today we'll be discussing the paper uh, crossing the cervical thoracic junction during posterior cervical uh, decompression and fusion. Is it necessary? Uh, so today we have Dr. Fayed uh, is the lead author for today's paper. Um, can you introduce yourself to the group and uh, to our listeners? Uh, sure. My name is uh, Islam Fayed. I'm a PGY-5 uh, neurosurgery resident at uh, Georgetown University Hospital. Uh, welcome. Um, as guest faculty, uh, we have Dr. Baum, who's uh, graciously joining us from New York City. Uh, could you introduce yourself to everybody as well? Happy to. This is uh, Griffin Baum. I'm uh, assistant professor of neurosurgery at uh, Lenox Hill Hospital, which is part of uh, the Northwell Hofstra School of Medicine in New York City. Welcome as well. And uh, as our CNS resident fellow, we have Dr. Patel, uh, who will be joining us towards the end with some additional questions. But if you can introduce yourself now, it'd be great. Sure. Uh, this is Vitesh Patel. I'm a PGY-6 neurosurgery resident at Rutgers in New Jersey. Uh, thank you again. And so I'd like to start uh, by first asking Dr. Fayed to give us an introduction of the topic, uh, maybe what inspired you a little bit, and uh, give us a summary of the paper uh, so our listeners can have an idea. Uh, sure. So uh, my, my colleagues and I would often uh, discuss, you know, while performing uh, posterior cervical fusions, you know, what uh, levels to, to fuse during these surgeries. And there's always a debate about how far to go with the uh, the end level of the construct. And you know, when, when looking at the literature, we didn't see very much uh, data about this subject, actually. Uh, so we want to look into it further. Um, uh, to kind of introduce the topic, we know that there's uh, differences in the biomechanics of the cervical spine and the thoracic spine. The, the cervical spine is much more mobile and lordotic as opposed to the thoracic spine, which is much more stiff um, and kyphotic. And that transition point at the cervical thoracic junction can create some instability. So the theory is that crossing that junction can prevent um, occurrence of adjacent segment disease. Um, so we, we set out to collect um, uh, data in a retrospective fashion from, from our own patients and compare um, outcomes based on end level. And interestingly enough, we found that uh, the end level of the construct had uh, independently predicting effect um, on revision rate or, or need for revision surgery. Uh, we found that the revision rate of uh, constructs ending in the thoracic spine was, was much lower. Um, but we also looked at several other kind of secondary outcomes, um, including uh, estimated blood loss and uh, duration of procedure. And we found that those were were higher when ending in the, in the thoracic spine. So it's kind of a, a balance here um, where you have to really decide um, and weigh the risks and benefits of crossing the junction in terms of providing better biomechanical stability of your construct, and weigh that against putting your patient through a, a longer procedure with higher blood loss. That's, that's ultimately our, our message here. Yeah, that's fair. Um, and, you know, it was a really good uh, paper, uh, if I can say, um, you know, one thing to always uh, help with, uh, you know, getting the readers involved is kind of give us an idea about uh, what led you to go ahead and cross the junction versus when you didn't just some of the methods and background of, of the of the study with respect to your selection criteria and whatnot. Uh, so th for the most part, it was, it was based on uh, attending preference and, and based on uh, reviewing each case individually. 
uh, look at the at the patient's uh, preoperative um, MRI and CT if available, uh, and look at the level of degenerative disease that's present at the um, cervicothoracic junction. We look at the C7-T1 disc space, for example, and the, as well as uh, level of facet arthropathy or stenosis that may be already present um, at that level. Um, and if it was significantly degenerated, then then we would decide to, to cross the junction. And we would also weigh um, you know, certain patient demographics in older, more medically frail patients. We would opt not to cross the junction typically, uh, so as not to put them through a, a, a longer, more morbid procedure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, fair. Um, and so, I mean, at this point, you know, it'd be really nice to have Dr. Baum join us. Maybe he can give us some additional insight from his practice and also give some questions to the author and for this paper. Absolutely. Well, uh, I have to say, Dr. Fyde, you guys uh, did an excellent job. You know, anytime you're looking to, you know, add uh, some case series to the literature, you always want it to be an excellent clinical question. And this is something that I think everybody asks, um, ask themselves and also asks uh, who they're working with. And oftentimes many patients ask as well, uh, you know, why, why do you think that you need to do extra levels uh, versus, uh, you know, being able to stop uh, at C6? So I think you guys did a, you know, an excellent job. Um, I guess my first question is, uh, you know, in terms of your patients, your case series, uh, do you guys maintain a surgical database or what, what's the source of your patients? Did you just do a, a retrospective uh, review using, uh, you know, an administrative database to identify patients or, you know, how did you kind of come to uh, develop this uh, group of patients? That's a good question. I, I think uh, having registries of patients is, is very important. Unfortunately, we did not have that in this in this study. Uh, so we went back and kind of manually looked through our, our records um, and our electronic medical record um, and collected data that way. Um, but I think going forward, we're trying to maintain a better like spinal registries of, of certain procedures that are performed that would make data collection much easier and facilitate performing studies like this. Gotcha. And uh, just uh, just to confirm, you guys did not include any patient-reported outcome measures, uh, VAS or NDI or JOA or anything like that as an outcome, correct? No, unfortunately, we did we did not have that data available. I think added to uh, we we didn't have that unfortunately. Yeah, you know, I can tell you just uh, you know from from my own practice, I think it's a very easy. Uh, you go to a lot of meetings and. Uh, you know, hear a lot of presentations, and it certainly seems, uh, you know, so easy that uh, everyone would be able to have this data available. Uh, but when you really try and actually collect it and uh, and analyze it, it is a lot of really hard work. And uh, you've got to basically have a full-time research uh, assistant or research team to stay on top of your patients, make sure they're not lost to uh, lost to follow-up, make sure that they, you know, are continuing to answer at three months, at six months, at one year, two years, five years. It's tough. So. Um, you know, as someone who's uh, very recently in practice, I can tell you it's, uh, I, I can definitely understand the decision not, not to include it. Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't think that that's necessarily an issue. Um, so, um, you know, just, uh, I guess, take us through your guys' planning process for a typical patient. You say you've got a, a patient with a cervical myelopathy. Um, you know, what's your usual preoperative workup for most of your attendings and, and uh, what sort of imaging studies and, and measurements do you do on for your patients before taking them to the operating room? I think uh, if a patient were presenting with myelopathy, we would 
typically start with an MRI of the, of the cervical spine, um, uh, in addition to, to flexion extension x-rays uh, to look at the, to see if there's any dynamic instability of the spine. Um, and based on the amount of stenosis that you would see uh, and where the stenosis actually was, whether it's ventral compression or dorsal compression, we would decide on, on the approach for surgery. Uh, this is assuming, of course, they, they failed conservative management already. Um, and then occasionally we would get um, CT scans, I guess, if there's concern for OPLL or, or other issues like that, or for planning for a long cervical or cervical thoracic construct to, to help with um, operative planning. Great. And uh, when you when you get to the operating room, um, you know, say say you're just going to do a, a standard C3 through 6 laminectomy infusion. Um, what do you guys use uh, in terms of intraoperative guidance? Do you use uh, fluoroscopy? Do you use navigation? Do you use robotics? Or are these largely, um, you know, done freehand? And maybe talk us through some of the technique that you guys use. Yeah. So for, for standard C3 to 6, your um, fusion, uh, we would just typically do kind of freehand technique and then confirm with um, traditional fluoroscopy. Um, it was just AP and lateral uh, fluoro shots. If we were extending into the thoracic spine, I the, the technique varied by attending, um, but that typically would be a freehand technique, uh, also confirmed with fluoroscopy, or um, you, would, uh, you know, put a pedicle finder you know, into the into the pedicle and then take an AP um, fluoro shot to confirm that you were in the pedicle prior to tapping and inserting the, the screw. Um, we, you know, we did not have um, intraop uh, CT or navigation at the time. We collected the patients for this study, um, but that certainly could be helpful with uh, with placement of thoracic screws, since those can be a little bit more technically challenging than than your standard lateral mass screws in the cervical spine. Yeah, definitely. And uh, you know, I think uh, you know you did a great job, you know, identifying I think length of surgery, EBL, some you know very important surrogates for um, you know just overall difficulty of the technique and. I think it's pretty clear you guys show, you know, statistically and also anecdotally that, um, you know, when you cross the junction, it's uh, significantly more time. Uh, you know, it's definitely significantly more blood loss, uh, just in terms of not only the exposure, but you're taking more time to do it. Um, and so, you know, I think, I think your, uh, you know, your results definitely line up with, you know, what I think most surgeons would identify, uh, you know, from their, from their time doing these cases on their own. Right. And um, interestingly enough, we actually did see a, a significant jump in both loss and um, procedure duration from T1 to T2. I think that uh, ultimately our, our recommendation would be to go to T1 if, if possible. Yeah, no, I think uh, I think that's very interesting. Um, so uh, as far as you know, implant choices, diameters, lengths for both the lateral mass screws and the the pedicle screws. When you're in the operating room, how do you guys decide what what you're going to use and ultimately what's going to get put in? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, we um, this was based on kind of study of the preoperative films. Um, I think for for lateral mass screws, almost all of them were kind of 3.5 millimeter diameter screws, and the lengths were usually 12 or 14 millimeters. And that we would measure the lengths on the preoperative um, X-rays or CT if if available. Um, and then the thoracic screws um, take more more planning, obviously, and those we would usually have a preoperative CT to, to measure uh, both of the length and diameter of those screws uh, preoperatively. Awesome. Awesome. 
And in the OR, what, what do you typically have the patients in uh, in Gardner Wells tongs or a Mayfield, or how how are you positioning the patients? Because obviously, uh, you know, when you're you know doing a fusion from C3 to C6, uh, you definitely want to you know make sure that you're at least maintaining uh, you know your lordosis, um, and you right. can make some pretty significant you know global alignment changes even from a short segment fusion like this. Right, so we would use Mayfield pins for for all of these cases. Um, you know, having the the patient fixed and non-mobile uh, during uh, manipulation of the cervical spine, I think, is very important, especially when working uh, doing a laminectomy and working close to the spinal cord. Um, and then it would it would allow for kind of intra-op manipulation as well, if if need be, uh, where one of the surgeons or or the assistant would break scrub and and adjust the um, uh, the position of the head and neck. Uh, within the Mayfield pins before uh, locking in the rods. In terms of, uh, you know, more technique type stuff that, you know, could could uh, be a confounder for the uh, the length of time, um, do you guys use routine uh, microscopy or use a surgical exoscope or do you primarily use uh, loops and headlight or even just, uh, you know, unmagnified views for, uh, for these types of posterior cervicals? Yeah, so primarily we would, we would just use um, loops and, and headlight. We thought that would sufficient magnification to perform these surgeries. Um, I think the exosco the microscope, uh, we, I don't think we need that level of magnification during these surgeries. And it could even slow down the surgery with you know, bringing in the microscope and taking it out or uh, taking on and off your loops and headlight. Um, but in terms of uh, exoscope, we, we don't have an exoscope at our institution, but, but I imagine that that can, Maybe more ergonomically, you know, favorable for for the surgeon, because you do spend a lot of time during these surgeries, kind of looking uh, straight down that clip strain on on the surgeon's neck. Absolutely, yeah. Just I uh, can tell you, uh, I've done it all three ways now. Um, you know, when I was in training, uh, largely loops and headlight for everything, and when I was in my fellowship, uh, we used a microscope for every single cervical case, anterior and posterior, uh, skin to skin, and. Okay. Uh, there's a definite learning curve uh, that goes into it. Uh, there are some real benefits for sure, um, and uh, but it uh, that is definitely a confounder, especially uh, the learning curve involved for uh, you know potentially having an increased length of time. And um, I can tell you that uh, the difference between doing a C3 through six and doing say like a C2 to T2 uh, using the microscope, I mean it's a it's a very significant jump, very significant right. change. Based on the two, so I now um, I use an exoscope uh, for all my cases, and uh, the one that we uh, use primarily is the the Orbi, uh, which mm -hmm. is made by Olympus and Sony, and um, it's very interesting. It's a very different workflow. Um, in a lot of ways, uh, like you mentioned, it, the ergonomics are excellent. Uh, the magnification mm -hmm. is excellent. In fact, it's almost surprising the kind of stuff that you can see that you couldn't see when you even you were using loops and headlight. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, as uh, Dr. Patel uh, knows from his time uh, over at Lenox Hill with us, uh, it uh, there's some very real logistical concerns of where do you put the screen, where do you put the machine, all, all sorts of things like that that uh, can really uh, make it difficult. But um, that's all uh, you know an interesting diversion, only to try and find you know some explanation for uh, your results on that increased length of time. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, just again, last sort of technique thing, uh, in terms of bone grafting, um, any difference in the technique for, 
your bone grafting and, and maybe what your choices are, whether you're using autograft or allograft between the, you know, the C3 through six, or the, we'll call it just the C6 lower instrumented vertebra cases versus the thoracic lower instrumented vertebra cases. Right, that's, that's a great question. I think for most of these cases, you're, you're performing an alignmentectomy as well. So you have the luxury of having a good amount of autograft. Um, so we, we would use that in addition to uh, demineralized bone matrix, usually in about a 50-50 mix of the, of the two. Uh, and I don't think there's any difference in um, you know, end level of instrumentation um, that led us to use different uh, types of bone graft. We typically just use that, that mix for, for all cases. Great. Uh, occasionally, and, uh, I it, sorry, for revision cases or cases where there is pseudoarthrosis, um, for those cases, we consider using a biologic like BMP, uh, but that, that was pretty rare, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, uh, having spent time with uh, quite a few sort of cervical only surgeons, both uh, in training and in fellowship, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't see a you know a, a big usage of the biologic agents for uh, for posterior cervical just because I think the outcomes are are quite good, um, mm -hmm. but uh, certainly a little bit uh, uh, off topic and outside the scope of of your uh, excellent paper. Um, so um, any difference in the indications that you were aware of between the two groups? Because obviously, if, you know, doing a posterior cervical. You know, I think myelopathy and stenosis are going to be, uh, you know, most common, but uh, trauma, acute fracture, spinal cord injury, um, you know, the cervical, uh, you know, just neck pain cases, uh, cervical deformity. I mean, there's certainly a, a pretty significant, uh, you know, difference in the technique and, the, you know, the type of planning that's required for each of these. Any, anything that you could identify that could maybe help explain some of the differences between the two groups based on indication? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I think um, in our case, most uh, most of our patients underwent this type of surgery for cervical spondylotic myelopathy uh, due to stenosis. Um, we did we made a point to exclude any patients that um, had a, a trauma or a tumor or any type of infection because we thought that would in introduce some confounding variables that we, that we didn't want in our study. Um, so, but there, we did include some deformity cases as well. Um, but we, we didn't really uh, in, include diagnosis as one of our dependent variables. We didn't break our cases down based on diagnosis. Um, so I don't have any um, you know, statistical data to, to give you about that. But anecdotally, I, I can say that I don't think there's any difference in outcome based on um, the, the indication for surgery. And how about any difference between the groups in, uh, in terms of being elective versus you know, urgent or emergent surgeries, uh, inpatient consults or... Uh, you know, mm -hmm. patients who uh, you're, you know, you're taking on a more urgent basis. Yeah, I think that would be interesting to look at as well. I, I don't have that exact data, data for you either, um, but I can say that most of our cases were elective. Um, even some of the inpatient consults would, would end up being relatively elective or semi-elective at least. Um, the more kind of urgent emerging cases are, are usually those related to trauma or, or infection. Like I said, we, we excluded those, those cases. Wonderful. Yeah. Um, and in terms of, uh, you know, once you're finishing the case, you've got your implants in, you've got your bone grafted, you've got your rods in. Uh, do you guys use uh, intraoperative antibiotics like uh, powdered uh, vancomycin or powdered topramycin into the wound before closure? Um, no, we usually don't, actually. I think um, some of our attendings will use it for thoracolumbar fusions, but I, I don't know of anyone who's using it for, for posterior cervical fusions. 
Um, we'd used um, you know, antibiotic irrigation to, to irrigate out the wound uh, throughout the case and, and the usual uh, pre-op dose of, of antibiotics, um, but no powder or anything like that. Interesting. Yeah, I'll jump in and just say that I uh, definitely use powder um, in addition uh, to what I do, but mm -hmm. I'm just finding that it being a lot more useful. There's some literature about it, but nevertheless, it's a little off topic. Yeah, yeah no, it's a, I think it's a controversial topic at this point. You know, some people swear by it and others don't use it at all. So I'm curious to see um, you know, more data about this in the future. Mm -hmm. yeah, no question. I can tell you... Um... Uh, I have also had the benefit of of seeing pretty much uh, every permutation, and you know now in my own practice, I've uh, definitely swung over to um, to using them. In fact, uh, in higher risk patients uh, or uh, older women at uh, you know at risk of a, a gram negative urinary tract infection, I'll actually use a powdered vancomycin and powdered tobramycin, and that uh, largely comes from uh, spending time with. Uh, a lot of my uh, orthopedic spine surgery colleagues who uh, have, uh, you know, quite a bit of experience using it uh, just in general orthopedics. And uh, I've actually, uh, you know, knock on wood, I have not had any posterior cervical infections at all since I've started my practice. And uh, the, uh, the surgeon I trained with who really, uh, you know, I, I use a lot of my technique from is, is Dan Rue at Columbia. And, uh, you know, if you talk to Dan, uh, both the use of uh, antibiotics and also uh, really a meticulous closure. Uh, he's not had a posterior cervical infection in 13 years. So it's, uh, wow. I think, uh, you know, I remember unfortunately taking so much call as a resident and seeing, you know, the posterior cervical patients come back with a dehiscence or, you know, their wound is draining. And, you know, I can't even think about how many of those I washed out at, Grady Hospital as a PGY2 and PGY3, but uh, it's pretty incredible to see, you know, how some some changes in technique and, you know, uh, what kind of outcomes you can achieve. So it's, um, anyways, again, like you said, a little bit of a diversion, but post post-operatively, um, uh, any difference, like, you know, would you put, say, a C3 through 6 patient in a hard collar, but not a, uh, a patient where you end it at T2 or any post-operative sort of immediate post-operative management differences between the two groups? Uh, not necessarily. We would place most of our patients in a hard cervical collar post-operatively, uh, typically for six weeks or, or longer if there's concern uh, in terms of osteoporosis or, or, or um, prior surgery that, that failed. Um, but typically, all of our patients would, would get a hard collar post-operatively. Got it. And just to confirm, smoking was uh, one of your confounders that you uh, controlled for between groups, correct? Uh, no, we didn't actually. That's one one piece of data that we were missing. Uh, I think a couple other studies um, published about this included smoking, which is obviously important, but that's something that, that we did, that data we did not have actually. Any sort of uh, anecdotes about, you know, your particular patient population at Georgetown and, and you know, how many smokers versus non-smokers you see and any maybe difference in, you know, the urgency of the case, uh, depending on uh, if you will, or tolerate a smoking status? Yeah, I'd say maybe 30% or so of our patients would be smokers that come in from the surrounding um, areas and did in Maryland. Um, and you know, obviously the, those patients, you, you're much more concerned about pseudoarthrosis, so pay more attention to, to your technique and, and the bone graft that you're, you're placing. Um, but uh, I think postoperatively, 
you know, some of those patients are the ones who, who come back with, uh, with pseudoporosis or, or hardware failure that end up needing revision, uh, but I don't have exact numbers, unfortunately. Can I can I intervene and just ask, uh, in, in patients like that, did you guys use like bone stimulators and whatnot? Or no? uh, we, we do sometimes, yeah. Uh, you know, several of the, of the attendings in our, in our practice uh, use bone stimulators and, and definitely in patients who are smokers, uh, those are the ones that we, we typically use the bone stimulators for. Okay. Well, anyways, uh, and, and the other the other thing that's important is uh, there are some attendings, I guess, and some people, including myself, that if you have a smoker, you know, the indications of when you come in, it's, you know, I don't know, there's some people that won't even operate on that. I mean, I'll, I'll make exceptions in some cases, but, you know, did you find any difference or, or should I say just a follow up to what Dr. Baum was saying with, uh, you said 30%, right? But how often do you see, you know, failures in general um, with that, you know, taking, just taking this out of account with respect to crossing the cervical junction, but like the, the number of pseudoarthrosis that you would see come back in general? Yeah, I think, I mean, yeah, I think, I mean, preoperatively, we, we push hard for these patients to stop smoking unless the surgery is uh, truly urgent and, and needs to happen immediately. We, um, we, Give them a period of time to, to stop smoking and give them a counseling on smoking cessation. Um, and I'd say, in terms of patients that we see with pseudoarthrosis, um, you know, uh, anecdotally, of course, I'd say at least half of them are probably smokers. Okay. Yeah, I think that it's an important question because there's really two schools of thought about uh, you know operating on on someone who's a smoker. Uh, you know, number one, you know, you in the back of your mind. Uh, when you're doing your primary surgery, you always have to be thinking about, okay, what's going to be my bailout if they fail? Right. Uh, and, you know, difficulty with lateral mass uh, uh, implants is that uh, when they fail, you really don't have enough bone to salvage it. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. occasionally you'll be able to upsize maybe a 3.5 screw to a, to a 4.0 screw, but, uh, you mm -hmm. know, typically if it pulls out, if, if you fracture the lateral mass, it, it can be very difficult. And then, you know, you're you're looking at okay. Well, do I try you know uh, pedicle screws? Um, but really, if you don't have uh, you don't have navigation at your disposal, uh, or you are you know not a, a hotshot surgeon um, like most of us are, <laughs> uh, you know you're thinking about okay. Well, you know how do I ex extend up and down? And the other thought is you know if a patient's at high risk, do you do the more aggressive surgery and you say, well, you know, I am going to take it to C2 because I know I can get some, you know, some 4.0, 16 or 18 par screws or, or even some C2 pedicle screws and then take it down into the thoracic spine and cross the junction, knowing that even if one of those level pseudos in the middle, there's still going to be good, strong instrumentation in, in the, you know, in the intermediary. So any thoughts on, on kind of what, where your surgeons typically erred towards? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I, I think we we err towards the the latter in terms of um, you know in these patients you you know they're high risk for pseudoarthrosis and and failure, uh, so we we assume kind of the worst uh, and for the most part we'll we'll aim for kind of the longer construct in patients like that to assure that we have kind of rigid fixation. So, um, what's the typical post-operative? Uh, follow up and imaging schedule and visit schedule. You know, how often were these patients being assessed? 
how often were you imaging them to see if there was an implant failure and and ultimately what what how did you define fusion because as you know this is a a real controversial topic and there's plenty of of articles you know if you read them they say oh well we had a 100% fusion rate but you know they really didn't do anything other than x-rays at 6 months and then past that as long as the patient wasn't having symptoms they called it fuse so there's you know, right. I think the, the devil's in the details when it when it comes to these types of, uh, of outcomes. Mm-hmm. No, that's a, that's a good point. And uh, so I'll start with uh, our usual follow-up. Obviously, there's there's some variation between our, our attendings, but typically we'd, we'd get a, a sort of upright um, plain x-rays uh, on post-op day one. Uh, and then you know, the patient would be discharged home or to rehab whenever they're able, usually on post-op day three or four. Uh, and then they would come in at two weeks for, for a wound check. Um, and then at six weeks with their next set of upright films. Um, and that would be at six weeks, then three months, then six months. Uh, and then towards the one year mark, we would actually get a CT scan uh, to evaluate for fusion. Uh, we'd look at kind of bone uh, formation, uh, kind of bridging across the lateral masses uh, and the cervical spines. And that would be kind of our metric for, for fusion. And uh, when in your cases that uh, had uh, implant failure that required revision. Was there any typical pattern that you saw? Was it the the upper screws, the lower screws, fracturing laterally, uh, pulling out? Uh, you know, any anything that sort of shed some light maybe on the biomechanical stresses that led to that failure? So actually, within our series, we we didn't see any specific hardware failure. We didn't see any screw pullout or or breakage. Um, but it was it was more the adjacent segment disease uh, and kyphosis, uh, th- cervical thoracic junction. That, w- that was a problem that that led to revision in, in these cases. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, uh, typically, it's the adjacent segment disease at the caudal level, like kind of below the construct, um, and more kyphosis at that uh, at the junction there. You know, I, I wanted to ask you about that. So, with the primary outcome in uh, table four, or should I say, in you know, one of the uh, paragraphs in your results section. Can you kind of like tell us a little bit about you know that breakdown as far as the um, uh, revision rates go? Because I see that there's end levels like six, seven, T1, T2, six, seven. Can you kind of go through some of that for us? Um, this is table four. You're talking about with the revision rates. Yeah. Yeah. So we we wanted to break it down um, as much as possible um, per level. So we looked at revision rates with uh, the caudal level of the construct being C6 and then uh, C7, T1, T2, uh, to have that those numbers individually. Because I think some of the prior studies uh, either didn't look at in- levels individually or neg- neglected to include C6, for example, uh, or T2. So we want to make sure we, we included all of those levels to have a kind of a more thorough analysis. Um, and then we want to break it down into end level being in the cervical spine or in the thoracic spine in general. So we kind of combine those groups into cervical versus thoracic and levels. Um, and I think it was significant uh, in both ways of comparison. When looking at those the levels individually, and we had higher rates of revision at C, when ending at C6 or C7, we see 8.3 and 5.3%, and lower rates at T1 or T2 with 2.6% at T1 and zero at, at T2. And then when you look at it in terms of cervical and level versus thoracic and level, that was still significant too, with a 7.6% revision rate when ending in the cervical spine, and only 1.4% when ending in the, in the thoracic spine. And, and that breakdown also let us compare to other uh, other studies because each study kind of 
decided differently, had a different breakdown. So we wanted to make sure we, ha we had our data broken down in, in every way possible to be able to compare it to other studies in our, in our discussion. Okay, yeah. Well, I was actually very curious how there was a difference between that C7 plus the C pl C6 plus C7. You know, it seems as if they're both ending at C7, or, or am I wrong in interpreting that? Uh, no, that would be all patients who had constructs ending at C6 plus all patients had constructs ending at C7. I see. So it's the combination of the, the prior two groups. Oh, I see, I see. Got it. Yeah. That makes sense. All right. Um, only only for the sake of time, you know, I'd like to see if Dr. Patel has any questions that he would like to add at this point. Uh, you know, uh, so first off, I was going to say this is actually a great paper from a trainee perspective. Uh, this is a question that, you know, we're always discussing even amongst our own residency programs. So I definitely, uh, you know, definitely I've sent this paper out, at least the abstract so far until the final PDFs out to our program residents. Um, I think Dr. Baum uh, sort of went through a lot of the questions that I had. Um, you know, I, the one point I just wanted to sort of, I guess, go over again was regarding your post-operative radiographs, uh, as also for listeners to know as well. You know, at least from our institution, our attendings are very adamant on making sure the attendings, uh, the post-operative radiographs are strictly upright, preferably yes. standing. Um, so in every one of your cases, they were, you know, you said you were all upright, correct? Correct. Yeah, I, I agree with that 100%. I thought, and we made sure that all of our uh, X-rays were at least upright and preferably standing, like you said. Uh, that's that's important to take in, into effect uh, you know, the patient's posture and and um, and the effect gravity has on their their alignment. Uh, and it's important to have them take the X-rays in the same way at each follow-up visit. Um, and that, and it's also important. You know, they have to be upright films in order to to measure the the cervical spinal parameters uh, accurately, at least. Right. I mean, I just want to sort of, again, echo for some of the trainees that are listening. Um, even when we look at our, our lumbar x-rays and such for pelvic parameters, I mean, if you look at them standing versus length, they're completely different numbers. Um, it just sort of echoes how important this is. Right. Um, I think that actually covers my questions. Dr. Bond actually covered most of the questions I had as well. Okay, fair enough. Uh, any other last uh, thoughts, Dr. Bond? No, I just, uh, I think you guys did a great job. Uh, you know, I think uh, the hallmark of a good case series, which as we know, uh, is going to be some of the more common studies that, uh, you know, you're going to have to vet in the literature. One of the great uh, findings of a case series is that it leads you back towards operative technique and it leads you back towards patient care as opposed to, you know, getting lost in the weeds with a lot of the statistical analysis and, you know, some of the uh, you know, finer points of, you know, doing a critical review. While those things are important, I think, you know, oftentimes, especially in journal club, it's it's so easy to just take a paper and tear it apart because of what patients they included or what was excluded and how they analyzed it. And ultimately, at the end of the day, the purpose of a journal club is to get you talking and thinking about, you know, a common problem. And this is a great example of an incredibly common problem that we face every single day. Um, and, you know, doing a, a really excellent analysis. So I give you guys a lot of credit. Congratulations. A job well done. And, uh, you know, thanks for letting us be a part of this. Yeah, thank you very much. I, I appreciate that. And I also want to acknowledge the, my mentors who, who helped with this project, you know, Drs. Uh, John Mark Royatsis and Fahim Sandhu at Georgetown. Uh, they, were, they were very helpful in helping me put this uh, project together uh, and, and providing me guidance in the, in the operating room and learning these techniques. 
That's great. I mean, this was a wonderful discussion. And I'd like to thank all the participants, you know, Dr. Fire, Dr. Baum, Dr. Patel, thank you so much for a wonderful journal club and a great discussion. And for all our listeners, I would like to encourage you to click through and obtain CME, which is currently free for CNS members uh, during this time. So check out for more upcoming uh, podcasts in the coming months. And uh, thanks again for everybody's time and uh, please stay safe. And this will conclude our CNS podcast for June. Uh, thank you, everybody. Thank you very much.